Just sit down and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Story of one of those significant moments in the life of the early church in which change is in. All kinds of stories about change. When you boil life down to the basics, the name of the game is change. Those who flex for the times, refuse to be rigid, resist the mold, reject the rut. Those are the people that very often are distinctively used by God. To them, change is a challenge, a fresh breeze that blows through the room of routine and blows away the stale air of sameness. Now, not everybody feels the same about change. Everybody, when they ask a new pastor to a church, talks to him in the initial few months about the changes that he will bring. They speak enthusiastically about the change until, of course, he starts to change their thing. That's a different story altogether. I like the story of the 100-year-old man who was being interviewed by a reporter on his birthday. You must have seen a lot of changes, the reporter said. Yes, I have, said the old man, and I'm proud to say that I've been against every one of them. Uh, he was obviously a Baptist, uh, because uh, you talk about change, they say, change? Uh, anyway, it's not only old men, of course, who are resistant to change. I can testify to that. Young men are very often the most resistant. Very interesting. Again, being in different churches has at least had one advantage for me. I've discovered that it's not always the older people who resist change. Sometimes it's the young people who are stuck in the mud. You may not want to hear that, but it is absolutely true. Now, sometimes our resistance to change is a vote of confidence in things as they are. Other times, the need for change is an indication that there are troubles, there are problems right beneath the surface of a church's life. And that's what we find here in Acts chapter 6. There is movement in the church. There is progression. There is growth. You notice that from verse 1. In those days, the disciples were increasing in number. And there were issues that were emerging as the numbers increased, as there was progress. So there were issues that developed. And so I want to look at the story as we have it here. The first thing you notice about the story is that there was a problem that fractured the church's life, a problem that fractured the church's life. W.P. Nicholson was a great Irish evangelist, and he used to say, if the devil cannot keep you from being converted, he will bend all his energies to get you diverted. And it's absolutely true. And there was a tendency, or there was a temptation for the early church to be diverted from its mission and its work that God had given to it. Chapters 4 and 5, there's persecution breaks out. The authorities are trying to suppress the Christian movement by force. Peter and John are flogged, and they're ordered not to speak at all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they could have submitted to that authoritative word. They could have caved in under, under the force of the authorities. After all, these were the theologians. They were the, these were the church leaders. These were the people with power and prestige and a history and a library full of books supporting their points of view. And there was no library. There were no 
Christian bookstore shops because as yet there were no Christian books and they could have felt the pressure to be silent. But as opposition intensified, so we've seen their determination intensified. They would not stop. And so in chapter 541, when they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. There's the key phrase. They were told to stop, but they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. So there was persecution. There was corruption. Corruption through the uh, avarice of Ananias and Sapphira enter the church and the hypocrisy of their action threatened to corrupt the inner life of the church. But they acted decisively, very decisively. Two church members dead. That's not the kind of church discipline we do here, so don't worry. But that's what they did in the early church. Two church members dead. That underlines the holiness of God, the holiness of the church, and the seriousness of this movement. Well, now we have the third of these trio of assaults by the devil, and we're to understand it in those terms. Satan has another thing up his sleeve. Look at the context. It's a context of growth and blessing. In Acts 2, we were told that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, but here the language is of multiplication. The disciples were increasing, multiplying in number. There is real growth taking place. Context is the preaching and teaching of the apostles at the end of chapter 5, preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. So there's church growth, and there's apostolic preaching, and there's energy among the people, there's purity in the church, and as this is the characteristic feature of this local church, something else happens. There is murmuring complaining, grumbling among the people. The word that's used is something that kind of describes a background noise. There was just this background noise. I was driving in uh, to church this evening, uh, and uh, in the car, there's one of those things that's rattling that I cannot identify. It's driving me mad. I'm just I just can't concentrate on driving for looking around and wondering where this thing is. I mean, Christine isn't even there. So there's no background noise in the car that there normally is telling me what I'm doing wrong. She wasn't there to, to, to do that. So it's some other noise that's irritating me in the car. Well, that's the kind of... That's the, no, I didn't really mean that. I didn't mean that. No. Oh, come on. But this is the kind of thing that, the, that is being described here. It's something that was a kind of background noise in the church of murmuring, complaining, grumbling, moaning. That's what's happening. They were whispering, and they were whispering against the apostles. That's the object of their attack. And it's very reminiscent of the Old Testament, very reminiscent of the story of Israel in the desert. Moses, you remember the people of God, they started to grumble and murmur against Moses because he wasn't really the kind of leader they were hoping to have. That's, that connection, I think, is intentional. It's there. It's a, a reminder that this is the new Israel. As in the old Israel, there are murmurings and complainings among the people of God. Specifically, there were two groups within the church. 
There were the Hellenists and the Hebraists. There were those who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic is what they would have spoken, but they were locals. They belonged to Jerusalem and Judea. They belonged in that area. That's where their home was. They'd grown up there. They'd never gone beyond there. They didn't have a passport, uh, and they'd never left their home place, and they spoke the native language, and Jerusalem was home. And there were the Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking people. They'd either were, they were either part of the dispersion of Jews, or they were convert, converts to Judaism, but their native language was Greek. And they'd moved to Jerusalem to be near the temple. They'd moved into the area. It may very well be they moved as a family. But by now the husband is dead and uh, the wives are left on their own. And here they are. They're far away from their familiar surroundings. They've come from a Greek background, so they've brought with them not only their Greek language, but their Greek culture. They've brought all this with them into the context of Jerusalem. So there are a number of issues going on here. There's a cultural difference between the Greek speakers and the Hebrew or the Aramaic speakers. There's a language difference, obviously, and with language differences, as you know, if you speak a different language, well, as I know, because I speak a different language from American English, normally, uh, there, there's a problem of translation. Like when I went to Canada many, many, I shouldn't tell you that. No. When I went to Canada many, many years ago, uh, I was talking about one of our children and what, how it was that I'd gone into their bedroom, lifted them up from the crib, and was nursing them. <laughs> in English, English, that just means cradling them in my arm. But apparently in American English, it has another meaning. So, so there were language differences. There were language differences, and language differences caused tensions among people. So there are cultural differences, language differences, and there's a sense in which, because these people are newcomers, well, there's, there's a problem right there. I always remember a deacon saying to me in a previous church, this church was great before you came, and all these new people started attending. The new people were not wanted, really, in that church. And so there are these tensions that are going on beneath the surface. There's also a genuine grievance going on here as well. I think we're being shown that, that there was a genuine grievance among the, the Hellenistic widows. They were being neglected. They didn't have the support systems that the locals would have had. And so they were particularly vulnerable in this situation. Now, what was this problem? Let's look at it theologically because we're meant to do that. It was a threat to the church's unity. There's the first thing that it was. And you can see, as, as you hear about their grumbling and complaining, you can hear the kind of thing that they are saying. Here's what they're saying. Do you see how they are neglecting us? You've heard, that, you've heard variations of that complaint uh, in, in your life, I'm sure. Because that's very often what happens, isn't it? Whenever we start complaining, we, we, in our minds, we imagine that there's them and they're us. And they are becoming the enemy. The more we feel we're being neglected, the more we feel overlooked, the more we feel that our things aren't being done the way we would like them and that everything is being done the way they like them, then the more we begin to think in terms of them and us. Now, this threatens the unity 
of Christ's church. And Satan uses this to bring division into churches. God is jealous for the unity of his church. I mean, they were wrong. At one level, they were wrong to go complaining. The apostle says that there not be murmuring and complaining among you. It's not a good thing to do this. It's not a good thing to, to create in your mind this idea of them and us within the church. Over any secondary issues, theological issues, doctrinal issues, but everything else that isn't in the Bible, everything else, frankly, you can have your own opinion about it. The Apostle Paul, for example, reminds us that problems like this need to be resolved because the church is the temple of God. The, the you is plural in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, you, plural, you, corporately, you are the temple of God. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. In Romans 16, Paul warns us, watch out for those who cause Division. So it was a threat to the church's unity, but it was also a threat to the church's mission. What was the mission of the church? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, or you will be my witnesses. The church exists corporately, we could say, for the benefit of its non-members. We exist for those who have not yet heard. That's part of what we do. It's part of what the church's purpose for being in the world is. If it was only for fellowship, God would just take us up to heaven immediately. We'd just be beamed up to, to glory, and there we'd have perfect fellowship. If it was all about worship, we'd be beamed up to glory because the worship in heaven, the singing in heaven is going to be absolutely perfect. So why are we left here? Well, we're left here to be an embassy of heaven here on earth as a witness to the world of God, our great King. So we have to ask ourselves regularly as a church, are we giving priority to getting the gospel out to the world? Every church has to look at its life, its staff, its worship style, its organization, and ask the question, is what we are doing conducive to our mission to get the gospel out to the world? Well, there was a problem that fractured the church's life. And then secondly, there was a pr principle that focused the church's priorities. In verse 2, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, here's the principle they laid down, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It is not right. That's what they were concerned about. They were concerned about what is pleasing to God, what was right. It was not pleasing to God for them called and set apart for the preaching of the Word of God to serve tables. That was their principle, absolutely essential. And they went on to argue that there was another ministry, another kind of ministry that was required by the church. Now, if you look at, if you look at that phrase in verse 1, the daily distribution... Uh, that word comes from the word to serve, and it's the same word that's used in verse 2 and in verse 4 of the service of the word and to serve tables and so on. So there's the service of the word, that is God serves us with his truth, he serves us with salvation, we are receivers, 
Most of you are sitting there receiving the Word of God, the Word of God that can save you, the Word of God that can nourish your soul, the Word of God that can feed you, the Word of God that can heal you, the Word of God that can bring life into your heart, the Word of God that gives faith, that communicates faith to those who believe it. The Word of God is served to you. You do nothing for it. You receive it. You hear it. You are passive. God serves you with His Word. But they were saying that there's a place for another ministry, another service. This time it's we who serve, and we serve tables. This wasn't a secondary, a secondary thing to the apostles. They weren't saying, you know, here are we and we're up here. Ministry of the Word is above everything, in, in a sense. And everything else is down here. In other words, saying, here's another ministry that we need to have in the life of the church. And you can see how important it was. They are neither demeaning or disparaging about this, but rather elevating this thing. Only the very best people are to be in this position. You notice the qualifications, high qualifications. You notice the quality of these seven men who were picked to do the job. These magnificent men whom God uses in the future for the ministry. This service to the saints is a vital ministry. So Christians are people who are served by God through the ministry of the Word and the sacraments. Christians are people who go out to serve their neighbor in the world. And the difference between them is a matter of calling. Now, of course, they're first of all, and we need to pause for a moment here to say that what the apostles are doing, I think, is raising the issue of priorities for the church at large as well as for themselves. Is there a biblical priority for the church? And I think what they're doing here is laying down a principle here in verse 2. And I think you can see from the wider context, this is the, the theme of the book of Acts, is that everything that goes on in the growth and the life of the church is driven by the Word of God. You see that in verse 7. The Word of God continued to increase. The Word did it. The Word did the work. That's what Martin Luther said. He said while he and uh, Master Philip were in the pub drinking their beer, the Word was doing the work. The Word was working in people's hearts, working in people's minds, doing the work in the church and in the world. That's what you find with our Lord Jesus. He was tempted, he was tempted to political work. Disciples or people came to him, wanted to make him a political liberator, wanted to make him a king by force. And he removes himself from them. He will not allow them to do that because he's a preacher par excellence. Or in Luke chapter 12, when he preaches a great sermon, which contains many great promises, but one man listening to the sermon comes up to him afterwards and says, uh, great sermon, Jesus but we have a bit of a family dispute here. We can't resolve the inheritance, and uh, there are kind of issues about, about who the heir is. And, and we could, could, you help us, could you help us sort out our inheritance? Jesus kind of says, go and talk to a lawyer about that. Don't talk to me about that. that that's not what I'm here to do. And he, begin, he preaches a sermon. And he preaches the parable of the rich fool and the need to get right with God. In other words, he takes them back to the gospel. We saw this in the case of the crippled person in chapter 3 of, of uh, the book of Acts. 
In that story, it's obviously the early church took its social responsibility seriously, but they had a priority list, and that in that priority list, the church, qua church, the church as the church, it has a priority of getting the gospel out to the world. There are other people who can do the other stuff, which we should be doing as well. But we can do, but there's one thing we do that nobody else is doing, and that is getting the gospel out to the world. Dr. Boyce in his commentary on Acts, I just checked him out to see if I was sound this evening before I came on the pulpit, and apparently I was. Uh, and uh, I was glad to hear that. He, he says in his commentary that it is, that what we see described here in terms of the beginning of the diaconate and the care of the, of the people of God in this practical way is an essential part of Christianity. Without this, there's no Christianity. But he says, first of all, is the priority of preaching the Word of God. It's in that context that you have the other thing. Without, without the preaching of the Word of God, without the preaching of the gospel, this, these good works are not distinctively Christian good works. They're good works which potentially anybody could do. What makes them distinctively Christian is that they're done in the context of a fellowship in which the Word of God directs, controls, governs, teaches, instructs, converts, builds up the people of God. And that wasn't all of him, by the way. That was a bit of me in there as well. Here in chapter 6, the social needs of the believers had to be met fairly and as a matter of urgency. They had to be met but the point that's being made here is this. They were not to be met by those whose calling was to preach the gospel. What's wrong in many churches today, of course, is that they've lost confidence in the gospel. They've lost confidence that the gospel can actually convert sinners and turn people into committed followers of Jesus Christ. And in losing the gospel, they have diverted their energies into other things. And ministers are no more than glorified social workers rather than proclaimers of the Word of God. It is the preaching that defines Christianity. There may be many ministries in the church, but it is the preaching of the gospel that makes those activities distinctively Christian. Well, there's the principle then that focuses the church's priorities. And then thirdly, there's a proposal that facilitated the church's growth. Now here it's interesting, and, and here again I'm quoting uh, Dr. Boyce. You notice what is, doesn't happen in, in this chapter. Do you notice there's no revelation from God on this occasion? Nothing like what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. You notice that the apostles don't even pray about this situation. You'll notice that they didn't tell the complainants to go somewhere else. You know, sometimes people come to, I'm sure it doesn't happen here, but sometimes people come to a church and they're complaining and so and they're gently encouraged to go somewhere else where they'll be happier. Well, the apostles don't do that either. Nor did they and again, I'm quoting, these, these are all Dr. Boyce, so I'm just giving you these ones, and then I'll get back to my own notes in a moment. 
nor did they gang up against the newcomers and outvote them in a congregational meeting. That's very often what happens in churches. Let me tell you, that happens a whole lot. People gang up against the minority in order to have their own way, usually on matters that aren't in the Bible. They didn't do that. What the apostles did was to minimize, was not to minimize the importance of the issue, but they bring it out into the open. Do you see that? They bring it before the church, the whole church, the full number, verse 2, of the disciples. They bring it out to, before them all. And they make a proposal and they involve the group. And everyone agrees. In fact, everyone comes to a position where they're all convinced that this new measure that they're taking is the will of God, what they said seemed right to the multitude. In other words, same word, pleasing to God. This new ministry was pleasing to God. And here was their proposal, two, two parts to it. Part number one, there was delegated authority. In one fell swoop, the apostles increased the ministry team and narrowed the responsibility of each participant in it. They worked on the assumption that God calls all of his people to ministry and that he calls different people to different ministries. Now, I think what we have here is the beginnings of diaconal ministry. From now on in the, in the Christian church, from now on it will become clearer as, as the New Testament goes forward but from now on, there will be only two offices in the church. There will be those who have roles analogous to the apostles, that is, the elders. They are the ones who teach the church, who direct the spiritual life of the church. And there are deacons who serve the body, who serve those within the church, who show mercy and pastoral care to those within the church who have practical needs. So there are only two offices in the church, but it seems to me that there's, a, there's a, a method of movement here that applies more widely to those areas that are not offices of the church, but are ministries in the church. There's a freedom. In fact, the book of church order for the PCA says this, that there's a freedom given to local churches to make practical arrangements for people to oversee finances or manage projects or direct ministries or... Uh, lead choirs or welcome guests or do outreach or show mercy or accompany the music. They, these are practical areas in the life of the church, and we are free to appoint people to do those things. But when it comes to the offices of the church, you notice the two things that are there that are structured, they're part of the structure and the organization of the church. The Word of God, represented by the elders and the needs of people represented by the diaconate. Those two things. Because if we preach the Word of God and don't look after our own, the Word of God is invalidated. Those two things belong together. Both are important in the life of the church. And look at the proposal as they go on. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Pick out means show concern or appoint. In other words, use your discernment. Find those who are of good repute. That means 
people whose reputation outside the church is good. Not just inside the church. People who are known outside the church for having good character. Nothing in their record. Nothing that will bring ill upon the church itself. People who have others who bear witness to their integrity and their wisdom. Stephen and the others, I say, are not called deacons here. One or two of them will be well, gifts and they will use them in other ways, but nonetheless, here they are being set apart for table ministry. This, this magnificent seven were godly men, a multicultural bunch, Nicholas being from Antioch, probably a convert to Judaism before becoming a convert to Christ. And do you notice the basis of the choice? It's character, first of all. And secondly, it's practical. Each of these men is a Greek name, which suggests that they came from the very group that was having the problem. I was very encouraged to read that commentary I was telling you about before I came out this evening because I discovered that I'm not the only one who has an aversion to committees. And uh, they didn't have a committee here. What a committee would have done is this. This is what a committee would have done. Now, we need to make sure, we need to make sure that if we're going to appoint seven people to deal with this problem in the church, that it kind of reflects the configuration of our congregation. We will need so many who are Hebrew speakers and so many who are Greek speakers. The Greek speakers are the people with the problem, but you know they're only part of the church and they're not a big part of the church. So we'll have to make sure that the committee is structured in such a way that it reflects the shape of the congregation. That, that's what would happen. I don't know if it would happen here at 10th, but it happens most places where they have committees. Well, they didn't erect a committee. You notice that? They set apart workers. And they took a big risk. Every one of them is a Greek speaker. This was an act of love towards this minority who were feeling marginalized. The leaders of the, these, these Aramaic-speaking native Hebrew Christians demonstrated how much they loved their Greek-speaking strangers among them by setting apart those to work for them, with them, people like themselves that they could identify with immediately. And they were men full of the Spirit and wisdom. A friend of mine says it like this, charisma without character equals catastrophe. Ability without integrity equals liability. The apostles appoint these men to do this work of mercy, ministry. Now, I think the proposal lays down an abiding model for dealing with problems and opportunities in the church. Delegate it to spiritual people to do the job. What I like is that the apostles, after they appointed these seven men, left them to it. They didn't, they didn't call them in every day and say, well, right, what are you doing here? It wasn't like they planted these little plants and, they, and then every day picked them up to see how they were growing. They trusted them. They trusted them to do the job. They left it to them to do the job. That's the way the church works. It works built on trust, built on belief in one another within the fellowship of God's people. Well, there were delegated responsibilities and renewed priorities. 
as the people began to exercise their ministry, as the people were ministered to, so the church grew. The apostles were able to commit themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The Word of God spread. The number of disciples increased rapidly. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They were reaching into places they'd never reached before. Those in high office within the Jewish establishment were being converted. This was a massive movement. Doing this one little thing, dealing with this one little issue, appointing these seven men to do this specific task, recognizing that the church couldn't exist if there were those within the fellowship who were feeling marginalized or sidelined or pushed, pushed to the side. And dealing with that, dealing with that in a godly manner was good for the church. And the church grew exponentially began to touch Africa to the south, as we'll see, and Asia and Europe to the north and the west. So here are two things that are absolutely vital for the life of a local church, the Word of God and the service of God's people. So what's your take home from this? Maybe you should be a deacon. Maybe that's the take home. Jim Boyce says, we do not have real Christianity without this vital function. It's part of the pillars of the church, the preaching of the Word of God and the caring of the people of God. And it's a good work because it's doing what Jesus does. It's serving. And service is what we're called to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word leads us to a life of service of others, care for their needs, physical and spiritual, practical, as well as for their need for the word of God. We pray that you would feed us with your word and help us to be a a brother and sister to each other, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.